Hi everyone, and welcome to Now Men, the podcast about men, gender equality, and masculinities. So we've not released an episode for a little while now, and that's largely been because there's actually been a strike going on at universities across the UK in defence of our pensions, for fair pay, against casualisation and gender and ethnicity pay gaps, and for manageable workloads. But we're still here. I'm still Stephen Burrell, and as always, I'm here with Sandy Ruxton. Hi, Stephen. I'm glad to hear you're still Stephen Burrell. I'm still Sandy Ruxton. You'd be pleased to hear as well. So, um, on a more serious note, uh, one thing that uh, has been at the forefront of many people's minds right now is the appalling earthquake in um, Turkey and Syria. At, at Durham University, we've already been planning to do the next episode of our podcast with a Turkish colleague, Dr. Demet Kaltakin. So we're really appreciative that she was willing to talk to us today, especially in such difficult circumstances. Yeah, and so Demet is an assistant professor in criminal law and criminal justice in the law school here at Durham. Um, She recently published a great book based on her PhD research, which is called Conscientious Objection in Turkey, a socio-legal analysis of the right to refuse military service. And that's been published by Edinburgh University Press. Um, So we'll mainly be talking to her about this today, as it feels really relevant to a lot of issues, a lot of gendered issues, which are taking place across the globe right now. So, Demet, welcome to Now and Men. Um, I've recently been in contact with several friends in Turkey who I met at a training event in Istanbul, which I co-ran on involving men in tackling violence against women. Um, Clearly the situation on the ground right now in Turkey and Syria is is desperate, is dire, and it's going to remain so for a long time to come, I think. So we wanted to just start by saying how grateful we are to you for talking to us today and it must be incredibly hard for you to watch what's going on from from afar from the UK um, we wondered if you have family and friends in the affected areas and and if so how, how are they coping uh, thank you thank you very much for uh, asking um, my family they are safe and my family and my friends are safe but uh, we do have friends that lost their colleagues and they, their students as well. So the situation is uh, really uh, worrying. And the earthquake in Turkey has left so many people in a very challenging and difficult uh, situation as well. And it is extremely uh, a difficult uh, situation. Yeah, we're going to talk to you today mainly about your um, research around militarism and war, but it's hard not to notice, you know, in Syria in particular, it's obviously been incredibly difficult to deal with the disaster because of the complete lack of, of infrastructure as a result mm-hmm. of the war or the different factions on, on all sides. And there seems to be a lot of criticism of the government response in, in Turkey too. I mean, I, I'm on social media with some friends and one of them posted a picture saying, you know, you know, showing an apartment box that's collapsed and saying, actually, this, you know, is is not just a wreck, it's, it's a murder scene, which is pretty strong language. I, I wondered how, if you had any observations on the rescue efforts in response to the, the earthquake so far that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, to be honest, the relief efforts after the earthquake uh, in Turkey have been uh, challenging um, and it has several reasons. Uh, this is partly because um, it was snowing heavily and some uh, some of the roads were uh, blocked. And it, it took t- uh, some time for rescue teams to um, to reach some affected areas, which decreased the chances of survival for, for many people. 
And unfortunately, another factor uh, contributing to the loss of uh, life uh, is also uh, the failure to follow building regulations and lack of control by the authorities. So more needed to be done to ensure that buildings were constructed to withstand earthquakes. And the professors, geologists, they were already warning us that we need to be ready for a big earthquakes. And given that Turkey is located on two fault lines, we needed to uh, do, do more, do, do best, to be honest. But um, there was unfortunately lack of control by authorities. And we see that these pictures uh, on the news as well, which is really, really sad. Mm. Also in Syria, uh, I believe that the relief efforts uh, have been complicated even more by the ongoing uh, civil war, which has already destroyed uh, much of its uh, infrastructure. And I think I believe that the recent earthquake has highlighted an international failure as well to help the victims. So in Syria particularly, um, it is a challenging situation and there is a need to ensure that um, relief efforts are effective and efficient, particularly in areas such as in, in Syria and areas facing additional significant uh, challenges. But in terms of Turkey, it was, um, uh, it was really heartwarming to see that rescue teams from all over the world are, are there to help and people, people are still coming together to provide support in, in any way that they can. And within Turkey as well, there are so many uh, positive initiatives uh, taking place. NGOs are organizing uh, fundraising activities and volunteer volunteers are working on the ground to rescue and assist those who are affected by the earthquake. So it is somehow like comforting to see people are coming from um, different backgrounds to, to support each other and particularly during this uh, such a, a difficult time. And there is a motto that even in social media, they say we will, we are here uh, to heal each other's wounds uh, together. I think the solidarity is the only thing that we have at the moment, and it is important uh, to 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 have it. And to be honest, and that's all we have. Thanks for that. And maybe um, we can put something in the show notes, which you know suggests to people how they can contribute as well from from mm -hmm, home mm -hmm. you know i know people are giving money you know already but uh if we can encourage people to do more through this podcast definitely, then I, i'm definitely. sure we will we will do that so so thank you anyway mm -hmm. for talking about thank that yeah. yeah no and just thank you again for being willing to speak to us like in such difficult times um although as you said it's also incredibly inspiring um to see how humans kind of are coming together and, and supporting each other even if the state is is not there um in such horrific circumstances um yeah um but perhaps we perhaps we should move on to your to your research now um so as we mentioned last year you had a really interesting book published on conscientious objection in Turkey. Um, so I suppose, you know, perhaps quite a lot of people might not be familiar with the situation in Turkey with regards to military service and, and why people might want to conscientiously object in the first place. So could you perhaps just tell us a little bit about what is the situation currently in Turkey with regards to military service? You know, who, who has to do it? Uh, how long do you have to do it for? What kind of things does it involve? Um, yeah, mm -hmm. could you just tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, like in Turkey, there is a male conscription system in place. Basically, all male citizens between the ages of 20 and 41 uh, are required to complete a compulsory military service. 
Um, so, but if we look at the bright side, uh, recently uh, the conscription period has been reduced, reduced from uh, 12 months uh, to 6 months and there is also an option uh, to pay an exemption fee and complete uh, a basic military training which uh, lasts uh, one month and after that the person is considered to have um, fulfilled their military obligations. This is the kind of the bright side. but. Um, here is where things get a bit more tricky. So for individuals who hold pacifist beliefs or oppose militarism in general, the situation can be extremely challenging because the right to conscientious objection to military service is not recognized in Turkey and there is no alternative uh, civilian uh, service uh, available. In that case, conscientious objectors uh, are uh, put in a very difficult position if they decide to uh, pursue their uh, conscience and religion. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you mentioned about the, the, the possibility of paying a fee. Does that create a bit of an inequality that, I suppose, for wealthier people, is it easier to avoid De the military service? Def definitely, definitely. Also, it doesn't solve the, the conscientious objectors' uh, problems because their problem is not about the military as an institution itself or they don't ask for only an exemption from military service like by paying. So they are more like um, against the, the, the social and cultural elements behind this compulsory military service because even if you pay for it, still it is compulsory. Mm. But you performed in, in, in different manners. So they are against that as well. Yeah, that's such an interesting topic. I mean, what led you to want to, to research it in the first place, to do a, to do a PhD on it? Yeah, could you say a little bit about the, the kind of personal reasons which, which led you to, mm. to do yeah, this research? Yeah, it is, it is very per personal, to be honest. So, um, so my interest in researching this topic particularly, or militarism and conscientious objection, uh, it actually dates back to my childhood. So when I was um, in primary school in Turkey, I remember uh, reciting the National Pledge of Allegiance every morning with my classmates. And it was part of our daily life routine. And every morning we were saying, I offer my existence to the Turkish nation as a gift. And instead of asking, hmm, why should we have to offer our existence as, as a gift? We are just six years old kids. Instead of asking that question, I developed a habit of saluting every soldier I saw on the street. And probably I felt the urge to behave like a soldier whenever I, I, I saw one. So I believe that these seemingly normal practices, which I now recognize as a form of normalization of militarism, encouraged me to uh, question the unquestionable presence of the military in uh, our daily life. Then I started to explore how militarism impacts um, individuals' um, freedom, particularly their freedom of expression. And during my uh, master at the University uh, of Essex, um, I looked at the limitations on uh, freedom of expression on the grounds of national security. And then eventually I found myself working on the impacts of militarism on individual freedom and to advocate for greater recognition of the right to conscientious objection in Turkey. And also my PhD project at, um, again, Durham University allowed me to investigate how militarism is normalized but not only normalized, but also resisted by conscientious objectors in Turkey. And through this research, I aim to um, shed light on the sociological background behind the non-recognition of the right to conscientious objection in Turkey. So 
As you can see, my interest in these issues is deeply personal and has been with me for a very, very, very long time. And I believe that it is important to question the things that we take for granted and to challenge the status quo that in our effort to um, create more equal and more uh, inclusive uh, society. Mm. And do you, given that, you know, when you were a child, clearly this kind of militarism, these ideas about the military had, had had an influence on you. Like, do, why do you think it was that you did then start to think a bit more critically? You know, you started to question these things. Do you, mm-hmm. Was there anything in mm-hmm. particular which, which led to that, that questioning? Uh, education. <laughs> Yeah. When I started yeah. my undergrad then, because I was in law school, you, they teach you how to be critical of everything. And then after uh, law school, I started my uh, master's degree in Turkey and it was on human rights. So all this led, to, led me to um, discuss and question uh, these things. And I believe that when you grow in this area and then when you start to question it slowly slowly and then gradually you 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 develop this uh, this um this mind to question everything taken for granted maybe um we should move on to you know the research itself and as part of it i think you interviewed men who were conscientious objectors in turkey so so can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about who those men were their backgrounds some of their stories um and what were some of the, their motivations? You may have mentioned this a bit already, but do you want to say more mm-hmm. about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, sure. I reached my participants through uh, the Association of uh, Conscientious Objection in Turkey, and all my participants, they identified themselves as anarchists, except one of them. Uh, she, she didn't hold any uh, political uh, views. Uh, initially, it was amazing to see that they were coming from uh, such diverse occupations, including students, teachers, uh, journalists, lawyers, social workers and sociologists, and also waitresses. So they were, they were activists working on issues related to war, gender and militarism. And not surprisingly, their social circle was kind of isolated from militarized and, uh, and gendered understanding. Uh, but even though they surrounded by like-minded individuals, and in that case, me, we may consider them as a homogeneous group, they indeed came from um, diverse backgrounds. So, for example, their uh, families uh, had different reactions to uh, their objections. Some participants felt that their families didn't understand them at all, and it was difficult to communicate with them, but other um, uh, participants received family support, or at least they felt that they had made their voices uh, voices heard. Um, I was also surprised to see that their motivations for um, objecting a military service were also diverse. Uh, for example, uh, some of my participants, they, they refer to their uh, religious convictions and pacifist grounds as the basis for their objection. And other participants, they rejected uh, military service uh, mostly on anti-militarist um, uh, grounds. But despite these differences, they all shared that one common ground, which was challenging the militarization of society. Not only militarization of society, but normalization of this militarization of society. So during the interviews, they constantly highlighted their desire for changing, um, changing social norms. 
So their objection is not just about um, refusing the, to perform military service, but it is also about challenging the sociological elements that maintain the conscription system. You mentioned a minute ago um, the response of families to um, mm-hmm. objection. I mean, I actually read somewhere that traditionally families may not consent even to their daughters marrying men who've not served their terms. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is very uh, traditional. The first question that they ask is whether um, the person has completed his uh, military service or not. And then the second question is that uh, whether he has a appropriate job or not. And the third question is usually whether um, he is taking alcohol or... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or this, this, these are the criteria, but the first one is that that whether he conducted his military service or not. And is it also true that that, um, most companies require men to have completed their military service before their candidacy can be accepted? Is that also the case? Yes, definitely. So so in a way, you know, as you say about, you know, social norms, this this discourse is kind of enshrined in the system so strongly, isn't it? It is. So it's not only they their right to freedom of thought and conscience is violated, but they are faced uh, inhuman treatments as well. For example, they, they lose their chances to find a job with uh, social security or uh, they also um, they can't even take a seat in the parliament because the, the constitution requires um, all the parliament members to, to, to complete their uh, uh, compulsory military service. So, yes, they do face additional uh, human rights uh, violations and, and the consequences is if you continue to object I mean presumably they're sent to, to some form of, of jail as a result is that is that the case or it was the case before but um, maybe I should talk about how um, uh, international law uh, evolved around a prosecution of uh, conscientious objectors initially this was the case so for example like conscientious objectors, they face the risk of persecution and convictions. And after serving their sentence, they are asked to join the army again, which leads the objectors to make new declarations. And these new declarations are seen as new acts that should be punished. But uh, this was the initial case. But um, thankfully, international standards on the punishment uh, of conscientious objectors have progressed over time, and Turkey responded to these uh, developments by uh, changing the punishment regime from repetitive uh, imprisonment to repetitive administrative fines. So they still somehow face this risk of uh, punishment and prosecution, but not in terms of um, imprisonment. So mostly these prison uh, sentences, they are uh, transfer to uh, administrative and judicial uh, fee. So I believe, am I right in saying that Turkey is now the only member of the Council of Europe which does not recognise the right to conscientious, the conscientious objection? objection. Yeah. yeah. And so, so could you say a little bit about why you think that is uh, the case? Maybe before I talk about this, I can talk about the um, the legal uh, status of this right at international level because sure, yeah. um, this is the starting point I, I I guess so the general idea the traditional approach to conscientious objection was that there is no explicit recognition of right to conscientious objection this in in this regional and international human rights documents this was the traditional approach of uh, the European Court or United Nations but 
by time that this understanding has changed and now all the like the human rights bodies particularly within the Council of Europe and United Nations they recognize this right the, the right to conscientious objection under the right to uh, religion thought and conscience and this, there is a growing recognition of this uh, the right to conscientious objection at uh, universal and also uh, regional level but unfortunately despite this recognition of the right Turkey still refuses uh, to recognize conscientious objection under the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. They believe that this right does not openly, specifically recognize conscientious objection. Therefore, it is not applicable to a conscientious objector's case. And that's why, as a result of this non-recognition and con uh, of this right to conscientious objection at domestic level, then when the objectors refuse to become part of the military service or military uh, structure, they face human rights violations. Because, I mean, you talk a little bit in your book about, wait, uh, a lot in your book about how um, this kind of stems from a long history of the kind of the role of the military and the militarization in Turkish society. I mean, perhaps for those those of us who don't know much about Turkey and its history, could you just say a little bit about about that, like where this comes from, where the military service and the the influence of the military comes from in, in Turkey. Could you just say a little bit about, about mm -hmm. that? Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, in Turkey, that when we look at the literature on civil-military relations, they, this, this literature argues that the, the conscription system initially, which uh, has introduced uh, in 1927, it provided a fertile ground, ground for the normalization of militarism in the country. So initially, the idea of every Turk is, uh, uh, is born a soldier and the Turkish nation is a military nation, uh, these myths, they became appealing justification for uh, the conscription system. So initially, they, they were used to, to justify why do we need a um, standing army or why, why do we need conscription system. But then military, military service was um, no longer just a necessity, but also became a cultural characteristics of Turks. So as a result, it is believed that being a good citizen means being a good soldier, and this idea of valorizing military service has, of course, left a lasting impact on education on, and, and it's reflected in the street uh, names or school names or even in our uh, like legal uh, system. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I found interesting in the book was how you talked about that, um, this idea that Turkey is somehow like surrounded by like potentially dangerous or like enemy states and that therefore this idea of security is so important in the in in ideas of of, of being turkish and things like that. and like <laughs> and the idea therefore that you need these kind of like strong men leaders to like protect the, the, the country yeah. from that um we, oh, we, for a very long time we did need um uh, external enemies to um to justify uh, why do we need a standing army and then when external enemies were not uh enough then we we needed internal enemies as well so we, like militarism also depends on uh, uh, cre creating um, uh, enemies so that individuals believe that we do need uh, standing armies to protect uh, our, our our nations mm. yeah i mean you can see the links here in the uk right with the war on terror and for example um similar things yeah. going on maybe yeah um, it, well militarism is everywhere yeah Absolutely. Yeah. 
And and I mean, you've you've mentioned a little bit about it, but do you want to say any more about how Turkish res- society responds to conscientious objectors? Like, so these men that you interviewed, you know, were they did they experience a lot of kind of social rejection, um, on you know, mocking or bullying or things like that? Um, yeah, how how are these how are these men treated by wider society? I suppose. How do they are, are they are treated? So as I mentioned, they they do live in a very isolated and and social circle and their social circle and their close friends they are all like open-minded individuals so they 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 pick their social circle in a way that they can uh, question militarism or in a way that their conscientious objection is is respected and uh, maybe i can talk about um the role of masculinity Mm -hmm. in uh, encouraging men uh, to um to enlist or uh, to perform military service, uh, then we can see how conscientious objectors are trying to um, not to conform conform to this idea of masculinity or idea of being real man or idea of that real man needs to be the hero or needs to protect their nation or their motherland against all kinds of, of, of threats. So there has always been an assumed link between military service and and masculinity. But this link maybe sometimes becomes more uh, obvious, particularly in societies with a a strong military presence or uh, what we experienced in during World War One, for example. During war times, men are also expected to align themselves with the military and participate in um, combat uh, duties. So, uh, for example, during World War One, I also examined this in my book. Um, war posters played a significant role in encouraging citizens to participate in this uh, ongoing war effort. And these posters were cheap and easy to to distribute, and they served as a constant reminder of the duty to serve in the in the in the army. And in these posters. Um, women were often portrayed as encouraging men to enlist and shaming men who refused to do so by using language that underestimates their or, or undermined their, their masculinity. So, for example, one post- poster uh, portrayed a woman asking, will you go or, or must I? And there were other posters, for example, uh, again, portraying women as saying, I want you for the Navy. If you want to fight, join the Marines. Or some posters were even uh, presented women saying like, uh, things like this. I wish I were a man. I will, I will just uh, join. So these messages were intended to uh, make men feel obliged to join the, the military and participate in the war effort. So regardless of their um, personal beliefs or feelings about, about the conflicts. So at the same time, during this wartime or in societies, uh, very militarized societies, policymakers are often rely on binary oppositions of um, like, for example, women as the protected and men as the protectors. And this dichotomy among men can translate into a different dichotomy of the heroic soldier versus the cowardly or lazy conscientious objectors. So there is, in one sense, like social expectations and masculine um, uh, pressures to join the military. 
we do have this pressure as well in Turkey. Like when we look at the, the extended family of these conscientious objectors, they did receive this uh, masculine pressure to, to join the army. But conscientious objectors, they, as I said, they have um, a different social circle and they try to refuse to confirm conform with these uh, masculine uh, features that are, let's say, exclusively uh, seen as necessary for being um, a real, quotation mark, real man. So they refuse to be ready to die and kill, and also they refuse to become a hero. Um, in that case, I asked the same question to my participants, whether they had this pressure from um, the extended circle. And to be honest, they... Um, even if wider society labels them, labels them like a, a lazy or coward or not real man enough, I don't think that this will make any impact on their decisions because the, the reason at, in first place why they are refusing is to not to conform with these uh, masculine ideas. I was I was um, struck by what you were saying about World War One and the posters. I mean, actually, that you know seems very similar to what I believe was happening in the UK and probably elsewhere at the same time as well. I mean, there's a famous poster, UK poster, yeah, this, your this country was, needs you, example. you know, um, yeah. Yeah. and the whole way that you know objectors were treated, um, some of them put into mm -hmm. prison, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That that seems very very mm -hmm. similar. So so it's not just Turkey we're talking about in a way when we're talking about some of the history. Here, but um, you said you said a bit in your answer too about how how women's place is within all of this. But uh, do you, I wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about that. You know about how that that uh, works um, today. So so do do many women participate in the military uh, now? Is that is that right in Turkey? Okay. Or? In not really. So to be honest, my research uh, doesn't focus on. Uh, women in the military, but I believe that uh, women in Turkey can serve in all branches of uh, uh, the Turkish military, but their representation in the military uh, remains uh, low compared to compared to men. So what I am interested to explore is uh, women conscientious objectors, mm -hmm. because in Turkey, uh, women are not subjected to compulsory military service, but still they declare their conscientious objection. Right. And they started to declare their objection since uh, 2004. And uh, because in 2004, anti-militaries, they organized a Milli Tourism Festival. It's not Militarism Festival, Milli Tourism Festival in Istanbul, in Turkey. So the aim was to protest and challenge and mock militarism by means of exhibitions, concerts, and they had um, guided tours uh, to raise awareness about uh, the rise of military, military symbols and statutes in, in the city, in Istanbul particularly. So one significant aspect of this um, festival was that five women, they were um, who had previously been seen as only the supporters of male conscientious objectors, they they publicly uh, declared their uh, objection to military service, and this was kind of a turning point. And after that event, women began to uh, challenge the invisible. Uh, hidden roots of militarism and its impact on their lives by specifically declaring their conscientious objection. But maybe, um, like, since they are not subjected to conscription, their voices uh, are likely to, to be seen uh, irrelevant. So they are mostly asked 
one common question why do you object because we, we don't make sense why why would they object while they are not subjected to this compulsory military service and to be honest it, during the interviews i did ask them the same question and during the interviews they what they said like most of them refer to their um, aim to challenge the gendered expectations and the normalization of militarism as an underlying reason for their objection. So they also mainly talked about how people are confused about a woman's objection, particularly their families. So while discussing their um, objection with their family members or with anybody who has difficulties in understanding their objection, uh, they try to direct uh, their attention to the ways militarism shaped uh, women's lives, for example, by um, glorifying motherhood or by portraying the nation as woman or and motherland. So by raising awareness of the ways militarism shapes women's life, they hope to challenge societal and also militarist expectations and they want to broaden the definition of um, conscientious objection. For example, one of uh, my uh, women participants, she remembered um, a high school memory where she was excited to apply for military high school exams, but she was quickly disappointed to learn that only male students were allowed to apply. So she took the leaflet, she was too excited to apply for military high school exam, and then she noticed that only male students were allowed to uh, apply. So she explained this moment, like this realization, as something that led her to gradually shift her position from dreaming of being a soldier to declaring her, her uh, objection uh, instead. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, I wanted to come back to one thing you said earlier as well. You said that some of the men were, you described them as kind of non-conformist as a, as a group. And I wondered whether how sort of sexuality and sexual orientation fits into that as well. I mean, presumably, you know, if you were gay, um, then, you, you know, your life as a conscript could be pretty difficult or your life in the military would be pretty difficult. So mm -hmm, was mm -hmm, that part mm -hmm. of your interviews and, and your um, understanding of the backgrounds uh, of, of the participants? Yeah, or, yeah, or, I, I, yeah. Or did you not know that? I don't know. No, no, I, I didn't interview uh, LGBTQ members because, um, but I do have, I do know from uh, academic works or um, or cases, domestic uh, cases that um, they can get exemption from military service based on that. But conscientious objectors, they do not want to get these exemptions because they are not after exemptions. They are after. Uh, refusing the, the, the idea itself, the idea of um, serving in the army or the idea that military service needs to be an obligation of citizens. So they are not asking for an exemption. That's why they would never uh, ask for paid exemption. Or some of them may refuse to uh, get this um, uh, report that will uh, allow them not to serve in the army. So some of them may be hesitant or maybe willingly not apply for 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 this uh, report right because even to get this report itself is a very problematic process itself so they don't want to be part of this yeah is, is that that uh, you know homosexuality itself is kind of defined as some sort of psychosexual illness you know which presumably they <laughs> they wouldn't uh, 
that will prevent them from a... serving in the army exactly yeah 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 yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i mean it's so you've sh you've shown i suppose lots of ways in which kind of militarism um, affects Turkish society more broadly, not just in terms in the context of actually serving in the military itself. I mean, we did have an episode of, of Now and Men previously with um, Professor Paul Highgate looking at militarized masculinities in the UK. And obviously you've been living in the UK for a while now. I, mean, I was just wondering, do you see any parallels with the situation here? Obviously, they are different contexts, but um, yeah, in terms of how these ideas can affect society in, in different different places. <laughs> yes, um, I mean, as I said, uh, militarism is literally everywhere. And the rise of militarism is not specific to Turkey, but it is a global uh, phenomenon. So I do remember that during my PhD, um, uh, that I read um, Cynthia Enmo's book on globalization and militarism, mm. where she consistently encourages us to be aware of the natural uh, to be aware of the, the trivial. So uh, she wants us to question everything that seems natural. Mm -hmm. So I was influenced by her ideas. And one day, uh, right before I left the house to go to the library, I asked myself, I said, Demet, how many militarized objects uh, objects you will see in your very brief walk uh, to your uh, to the library? <laughs> and I used to live like literally 15 minutes walk from the library. And the moment I left my house, I found an envelope with a poppy stamp uh, and in my mailbox waiting for me. So it was like, OK, this was very unexpectedly soon. And then I left the house and on my way to the library, I, I came across uh, an army recruitment stand mm -hmm. where like curious kids were asking soldiers questions about the prospect of joining the army. And their parents, they, they stood by and they, they, they were watching them with very pleased eyes by like smiling. And then I, I went to the corner, one corner, and I passed a local bookshop, which displayed a portrait of a tired soldier at um, its windows. And finally, I reached the library. And then in the library, I saw some of the war posters as well. Like, it's like, hey, you, woman, Britain, say, go posters. And these posters were um, at the, the, the library's uh, bookshop as well. So this experience made me think of Turkey as well, where it is so common for kids, for example, to have uh, uniforms and, and toy guns. So it was interesting to observe how militarism is not only present in the institutional area, but also embedded in our um, uh, everyday life. So. Then I was really surprised because even though I was working on this topic uh -huh. specifically, I was not aware of, and even though I was passing exactly the same road, like five days a week, I didn't notice these symbols until literally I asked myself, Demet, you need to be aware of them. <laughs> and then I, I just figured out all of them. And, and, and it was so quick to encounter one of them literally in front of my, my, my house, like in my mailbox. So as I said, yes, militarism is everywhere. And we live in the era of globaliz globalized militarization. And that's why I find it very important to understand the different ways in which mi militarism is being resisted around the world as well. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, given given the extent to which this is embedded in all societies, uh, as you say, and including in Turkish society, I mean, how much do you believe that that change is possible? Um, you know, I mean, you, 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 I suppose with your your research, you adopt a really interesting, unique approach, this kind of socio legal approach, right? Where you're but you're interested in the laws and how they function, but also you've actually spoken mm-hmm. to, you've done this more like sociological research as well, like interviewing uh, people and and their experiences, which I think is really interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, do you think that we need changes to the law, or is that not sufficient? You know, do we need this this broader change in social mm-hmm. norms as well and and how do you see those things as, as being connected i guess yeah i mean my work was socio-legal study so that means that law influenced society and in return society influenced uh, the law as well and changing the law itself we know it from even um uh, women's rights that itself it's not enough so we need to change the, the, the society's understanding because law in paper sometimes is not uh, efficient so but at the same time, I am hopeful. I do um, because I left my field work um, with a big hope. Because after I heard um, the, the the life stories of conscientious objectors and their commitment to to uh, to change the society, to change the way we think about militarism or to think about security or national security issues, then I left my field work. Uh, I was really hopeful, and also. Even when we look at the history of conscientious objection, the the legal statutes of this conscientious objection, we see that initially the courts, they were also hesitant, international bodies, human rights organizations uh, bodies, they were hesitant to to recognize this right. But individuals, they didn't stop. They, they, they kept bringing their cases to European court or to uh, human rights uh, bodies. So this insistence, coming from these activists, also somehow they they forced uh, international bodies to eventually recognize this right. So you see that there is a gradual slow, but at the same time gradual recognition of the right at the international level. And that's what conscientious objectors in Turkey are trying to do. Like every single step, they, they, are, they are trying to change the, the law. They are trying to change the, the, the society. So I am hopeful, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, you, you know, these ideas about militarism, as, as you said, you know, they're, they're kind of everywhere. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking about the sort of resonance with um, what's going on in Ukraine right now. So, you know, many mm-hmm. Russian men appear to have tried to resist attempts to to be conscripted and sent to fight. I mean, some of them, you know, yeah. obviously been in prison and they faced the invidious choice of either going to the military or or remaining in prison you know um Mm -hmm. but on the ukrainian side as well um men between i think it's 18 and 60 they're not allowed to leave the country even though they they may not be willing or able to to fight so i'm wondering how the how the issues raised by your research connect to Mm -hmm. what's happening there in ukraine right now there are unfortunately there are so again the situation they face uh, is also deeply concerning and it also highlights the difficulties faced by uh, those who decide to follow their conscience and religion and choose to be conscientious objectors rather than a soldier or rather than uh, joining the army or uh, contributing to the, to, the, to the war effort. Currently, as you mentioned, Ukraine has suspended the right to conscientious objection and this puts conscientious objectors in a very uh, difficult position and in a position where they they face the threat of um, imprisonment. 
there is also one case that uh, War Resisters International is uh, supporting, and um, the case of Vitaly Alexenko, uh, who was uh, denied the opportunity to perform alternative civil service, and instead um, he was sentenced to one year in prison for refusing to perform military service due to his um, uh, religious uh, beliefs. So as I mentioned, the international organizations like War Resisters uh, International, they are working uh, to support conscientious objectors like uh, Alexanko, and they are advocating for uh, the charges against them uh, to be dropped. Uh, I do believe that these um, efforts are very essential in protecting the basic uh, human rights of conscientious objectors. Like, as I found in my, unfortunately, as I have found in my research, the tendency to criminalize conscientious objection is a global issue. And it's a global issue that uh, points to wider challenges around the criminalization of conscience and the restriction of individual uh, freedom in the name of national security. So when states, they face any internal or external threats, this is the first right that is going to be violated. And uh, in that sense, we, we need to really make sure that the right to conscientious objection is as inclusive as it can be. Thanks for that. Um, we're, I think we're coming close to the end of our, our time, but um, I know you've also written uh, a bit about women's organisations in Turkey and their campaigning mm -hmm. against femicide, and that's garnered some attention around the world. I wondered if you wanted mm -hmm. to tell us briefly about the situation uh, in Turkey on that issue and, and also maybe about men's violence against women in, in Turkey currently as well. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of challenges has you know, the feminist movement face and what, what are they doing to, to try and shift some of these uh, issues? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, to understand uh, all these questions that you <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit, that's a bit of a big question. <laughs> I say, you know, we're coming to the end. Oh, by the way, here's a huge set of issues to talk about. So <laughs> <You'll>, exactly, <laughs> maybe pick, exactly. pick what you can out of this. <laughs> I apologise. Okay, then I can summarise it like... Um, like I did investigate the involvement of uh, women's organizations in femicide and also uh, suspicious death cases. And I focused on one particular case, which was um, really interesting, Shule Chet's case. And uh, Shule was a university uh, student um, who suspiciously lost her life after um, falling off the 20th floor of a very high-rise uh, building in Ankara. And in Shule's case, the lack of procedural fairness at the investigation stage raised intense uh, public reactions. And women organizations, they intervened to make her story public and challenge the faulty assumptions of that women are weak and women are prone to committing suicide. Because the first thing that came to the police mind was that she committed suicide rather than... Um, probably somebody throw uh, uh, her uh, off this advantage uh, building, uh, the floor. So to understand that, I interviewed um, Shule, Shule's lawyers and also members of two uh, women's organizations and just to understand how they make femicide cases visible and counter the dominant narrative surrounding uh, femicide on, or suspicious death cases. So what I learned from them was that these organizations, they aim to encourage the court uh, to hear counter-narratives 
that challenge the gender inequalities and, and stereotypes. So, and their ongoing struggle to encourage court, uh, to encourage court to hear their, um, their stories uh, demands a, a cooperation between different social and legal mechanisms. They follow femicide cases, they form uh, public uh, opinion through uh, social media, they, they constantly use social media to create, uh, to raise awareness, and they organize um, demonstrations in the, the areas where uh, women are murdered. And they say they leave a pink glove there, and the idea is that you are not alone and we are taking your struggle mm. from where, 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 where you left. So it's more about we are here for you and they, they become the voice of these femicide victims. Also, what I learned from them was uh, that these organizations' movement, that their involvement, uh, they transform femicide cases from being only statistics they, they make them a public cause and they contribute to a woman's struggle in, in different ways. So when they are not just statistics anymore, public get involved, they get emotion, they feel that they need to be part of it. So they join the demonstrations, they, they put pressure on decision-making bodies as well. So in that case, they are really essential to make the victims' uh, voices uh, heard. And do you want to say a little bit about the, the challenges that um, civil society organisations and women's organisations in general face? I mean, I say that because I, mean, I mentioned in the introduction that I, I was involved in co-running some training uh, um, with civil society organisations and women's organisations. <laughs> this was back in about 2016. And, you know, we were tremendously impressed by the, the commitment, the professionalism, the knowledge of those organisations and, and the individuals who came to the training. Mm -hmm. um, we learned a lot from them, it has to be said. You know, but we were shocked afterwards that I think it was about 300, uh, 340 civil society organisations, including many women's organisations, were, were suddenly closed down um, just just after that. So so how is the sort of context and, and environment for women's organisations and civil society now? Is it possible for them mm -hmm. to operate openly or, or are they still facing real real difficulties ar around this they do face real difficulties but at the same time they are so experienced of uh, by dealing this the experiences so they always come up with something new something interesting something uh, that will allow them to continue to work on these these aspects to eliminate uh, violence against women for example so Recently, they started using, for example, social media, and this is very like one of the uh, the tools that they, they use. And as you said, they are very intellectual. So most of them are, for example, we do have one center. It's called Gelenjik Center in Turkey. They are um, lawyers, and they do have uh, constantly. They are trained. Um, uh, about how they should approach the victims, how they should create awareness in, in the court and how they can uh, follow uh, femicide cases. So they do have this, they, are, they have volunteer uh, uh, lawyers at the same time. So they do have this, um, they know how to deal with this mm. uh, kind of uh, right. difficulties. They always come up with something new mm. as well. 
So that, that's what makes us helpful. Yeah. Mm, no, I, I really admire your your, your hope uh, in the face of these difficulties. Yeah. I mean, mm. one thing, as uh, to, unfortunately, to name another uh, concerning thing is, of course, that Turkey did kind of withdraw from the Council of Europe's Istanbul Convention on mm. the prevent, mm -hmm. prevention, preventing and combating violence against women um, in 2021. Um, so it's quite a worrying development. I mean, do you think that that reflects a kind of growing backlash against gender equality and efforts to tackle violence against women in, in Turkey? Or Unfortunately, yes, it does. But at the same time, yes, Turkey's withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention is a setback for gender equality in the country. It is a setback from the initial commitment of the country to promoting gender equality and eliminating violence against women. So I... I also want to highlight that Turkey was the first uh, signatory of the Istanbul Convention when it mm. was first open to um, signature in Istanbul mm. in in 2011. So, and then a year later, uh, the Parliament passed a domestic law on gender uh, gender-based violence just to align the domestic law with the Istanbul Convention. So uh, again, like Turkey's withdrawal from the convention, yes, it reflects a backlash uh, uh, against gender equality. But the positive news is that there is still hope for progress because civil organizations and political parties are challenging this, this decision. So while the situation is really concerning, it is really important to recognize the progress that has been made mm. towards promoting gender equalities mm. and towards protecting uh, uh, women's rights. So, mm. for example, the, the decreasing public support uh, for controlling women's behavior and uh, public's uh, involvement in domestic uh, violence and femicide cases they are positive steps uh, and positive developments that reflect the impact of feminist advocacy and the, the, the work of women organizations and women organizations' efforts to raise awareness about the, the importance of gender uh, equality. Yes, I do believe that there is still work to be done towards achieving full gender equality in Turkey, but the efforts being made by activists and um, women organizations are also uh, promising mm. yeah absolutely well i think that's a that's a perfect place to end it, i think uh, Demet. so thank you so much for giving up the, your time to speak to us especially with everything that's going on right now yes thanks thank too you. from me Demet. um it's it's inspiring to hear you talk about you know the yeah. possibilities of change even in such difficult mm. circumstances so thank you that's mm -hmm. yeah. all we have hope right <laughs> at the moment Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Stephen, that was a fascinating conversation with Demet, wasn't it? I mean, you know, she raised quite a lot of issues which are specific to Turkey, but as she said, you know, a lot of this stuff has much wider resonance as well. Um, what did you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it was so interesting to hear uh, what she had to say. I mean, one thing which came to my mind is that I suppose conscientious objection potentially quite fundamentally challenges like dominant quite patriarchal ideas about masculinity in society doesn't it how much we associate i suppose some of the most idealized images of of being a man with the military with fighting and and war and so by refusing to participate in that you are you know you're really potentially quite seriously challenging um what it means to be a man in society uh, but i suppose it's interesting isn't it because actually to do that 
um, often does involve huge risk. And it's therefore itself quite a brave thing to do, um, including in the, in the Turkish context, for example. I mean, I also watched a film recently um, called A Hidden Life, directed by Terence Malick, um, which focuses on a, a man in Austria in the Second World War who refused to take part in the kind of Nazi uh, war machine. And as you can imagine, there was not a happy end to that story kind of thing. So it just shows the kind of bravery involved. And I suppose it forces us all to perhaps ask ourselves that question, doesn't it? What would we do in that situation? And um, But also I was quite impressed by what Demet was saying as well about how, how women have been engaged in, in these conversations and, and kind of making explicit their opposition to, to militarization and, and war um, as well, really. Um, yeah, what did you make of the of the conversation? Yeah, it was interesting how she said basically that uh, those people who uh, are conscientious objectors in Turkey, you know, it's not just that they don't want to enlist, it's actually they want to undermine the whole, whole system that mm. you've just described, you know. Mm. But one of the other things that she um, mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, was her little journey to, to work and how many moments along that journey she identified uh, symbols and, and, you know, messages uh, relevant to militarism in, in the UK. And she made me think then, uh, well, firstly, that it would be quite interesting for listeners to do a bit of that themselves, you know, go out on your way to work when you're going shopping, have a think about what's, what surrounds you. But, but also I thought about the episode we did with um, Paul Highgate last year, and he talked a lot about you know the ways in which uh, ideas about militarism are kind of are very embedded uh, and enshrined. You know, it doesn't. I mean, it could be Armed Forces Day or the Cadet Force or Remembrance Sunday. Um, you know, defence budgets, all these kinds of uh, ways in which militarism is is reinforced and 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 kind of normalised, really. So uh, yeah. that was one of my main sort of takeaways from it is just mm. to to remember that that stuff mm. yeah and i think i think that's a great challenge for our listeners and one i will engage in as well is is making note of those moments when you those everyday moments when you encounter this kind of militarization of of society um another thing which i mean of course it's impossible not to think as well about the, the terrible situation in turkey and syria right now after the earthquakes um and one thing which came to my mind as well is of course these things are all linked aren't they and um yeah i mean you can't help but think back to the episode we did with with bob peace talking about natural disasters and how um, those are gendered in all sorts of ways, right? Uh, for example, that we do often see after disasters, such as potentially earthquakes, um, increases in different forms of violence against women, for example. Um, perhaps, you know, as uh, obviously for lots of men, for lots of people in general, you, that you can feel a huge loss of control over your life and what's going on around you when something huge like that happens. And perhaps for some men, they may respond to that by increasing their control over their the people in their lives such as their partners or children um other women um so i think that's something to be mindful of in this context but also i suppose more widely right in in terms of the climate crisis and we know that you know that's that's just increasing natural disasters around the world and we really need to think about these gendered issues in response to these these crises which uh, which happen yes i i agree um wholeheartedly and, and the other thing that uh, she made me uh, reflect on was just the sort of resilience of the women's movement, um, and particularly in Turkey, you know, mm. and I, I mentioned the um, the training that I was involved in, but, uh, you know, it's just hard to acknowledge, you know, mm. the difficulties that they face in continuing to work in, in a place like Turkey. And yet, at the same time, as, as Demet described, the hope that she 
and many others bring to that struggle. So um, mm. uh, I think there's some lessons in that for, for all of us, really. Yeah, no, exactly, because these issues are relevant to all of us, aren't they? Like we talked about backlash, and that's something we're definitely uh, confronting here in the UK as well, for example. So, um, yeah, but perhaps, um, perhaps we should stop there uh, for this week. But thank you so much, everybody, as always, for listening to us. Do contact us at nowamen at gmail.com if you ever have questions or comments about, about the podcast. And uh, do subscribe if you haven't already. Tell your friends about the show. And uh, hopefully we'll be speaking to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. You're still Stephen Burrell, aren't you, even at the end of the episode? <laughs> I, as far as I'm aware, I am. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> as long as you're still Sandy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bye for now.